0: Well, it is good to be back in the pulpit here at Calvary. A thanks to Roy and Scott who brought us God's word out of the Psalms. You should know that we had a great time worshiping uh, in Yellowstone and the Grand Tetons. I actually spent time in Christ the Ascension, a little church there outside of the Tetons and sang some hymns and thought of you uh, in a way prettier setting with way better temperatures. That's just my talking smack to you. I get that. I trust that you were edified by the preaching of his word while I was gone. We are in the midst of a series that we have entitled, My Anchor Holds. We're using Hebrews six nineteen and 20, which was just recited to us, and the book of Psalms to talk through the reality that Jesus is a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul, such that in any and every storm that we experience, no matter how high the waves get or how much the boat rocks, that if you have believed in Jesus Christ, there is a biblical and a theological reality that you are anchored into eternity through Jesus Christ, that you're anchored to the throne of God through Jesus Christ, and that He is the rock that will steady you, that He is your only hope in the midst of a storm, and so we're using this series to prepare us to face storms, whether we're in them now or not. Because as Jesus told us, and I tell us every week, in John sixteen thirty three, Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me, you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And that is our truth. We will have tribulation. We will have trials, we will have struggles, or whatever you want to call them, bad things will happen to you. And in the midst of it, as believers in Jesus Christ, our hope is not in the calming of the storm, but in the one who calms the storm. In the one we have peace in, the one who has overcome the world. Friends, we're using the book of Psalms in this series because when the time comes for you to walk through a storm, even if it's today, we want you to have a series of roadmaps. We want you to have a language. We want you to have a dialect. We want you to have places in your Bible that you can turn to, that you could say, whoa, that's me. I'm in this place. And yet I can be anchored. I can find hope even in the midst of a storm. We want you to see practically what it looks like to be anchored in the storm, as David often is, or as any of the other authors who've written any of the 13 psalms we're going to walk through. They're all dealing with adversity, and yet they're anchored. So this morning we'll be in Psalm 11. So as you're opening your Bibles and turning there, I want to give you a quote that I found in Charles Spurgeon's commentary. Actually, it's attributed to Charles Simeon, a 16th century English pastor. This is what Charles Simeon says about this 11th Psalm. David, at the different periods of his life, was placed in almost every situation in which a believer, whether rich or poor, can be placed. In these heavenly compositions, he delineates all the workings of the heart. He introduces us to the sentiments and the conduct of the various persons who were accessory either to his troubles or his joys, and thus sets before us a compendium of all that is passing in the hearts of men throughout the world. Which is to say, if you don't follow 16th century English very well, David suffered In many different situations, and it does not matter your background or where you've come from or what you understand, you ought to be able to relate to David. You ought to be able to relate to his experiences and thus be encouraged. That's Charles Simeon looking at this 11th Psalm where we'll spend our time this morning. So let's dig into it. Psalm 11 to the choir master of David. Just a short note, these subscripts are part of the original text, and some of the earliest versions, they even called them the, verse, the first verse. But what you find, and what we should be reminded of when we come across these subscripts, is that all of these psalms were sung. They were worship songs, and David wrote this psalm. It gives us that. But we're not given a specific setting. It doesn't tell us the circumstances David in, though we'll glean some context as we move through it. So verse one says, in the Lord I take refuge. David says at the onset of this Psalm, before we know anything of his situation, before we know anything of his circumstance that he is anchored. And can I just tell you the time to get anchored is when you don't have a storm. That if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, if you've never put your hope in Jesus Christ, you've never trusted in Him, put your whole confidence in Him, the time to do that is when the waves aren't rolling, and the wind is blowing, the time to do it is now. Because Jesus is a sure and steadfast anchor and our hope. As we walk through this series, I'm not trying to just genuinely or generally encourage you as if this can be true for absolutely anyone in the world. Your pagan neighbor doesn't get to have an anchor in Jesus just because he goes to church on Easter every year. These are truths that are true for believers. And this morning as we lean into this text, what I want us to do is really lean in what does it mean to take Jesus As our refuge. What does it mean? Because when David says, it's in the Lord that I take refuge, David's saying it's in him. He's my hope. So what David is proclaiming is a whole litany of things, he's not proclaiming, right? David's not saying, I'm strong enough to do this on my own. I can handle this. David's not saying, I've got a group of peers, I've got a buddy, or in fact an army, I can call who can get me out of this. David's not proclaiming any of that. David doesn't say, I've got a Hail Mary play that gets me out of here. No, in this situation, in this storm, David proclaims early on, in the Lord I take refuge. And if you dig deeper, into what this word means, and I mean in the Hebrew, what it, this word translated as refuge, what it really means is that you would place all of your confidence, that you would place all of your trust in this thing, that it's to go all in. This is my only hope. That's, according to the text, what it means when it says, the Lord is my refuge. This word not only tells us that David was going all in, you should know that as you follow through it in the Old Testament, this word also carries promises with it. Let me share a couple of them with you. In Nahum 1, 7 i I've been waiting to quote Nahum, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Now that's a promise that's tied to Jesus being your refuge. That he knows you, which means he knows your situation, which means he knows your circumstance, which means he knows what you're going through. John 5 is one of my favorite passages. The man laying at the pool of Bethesda who's not yet healed it says in the text that Jesus knew him and knew his situation, knew how long he'd been laying there. Which means you got a guy who's been suffering for 30 years and Jesus knows it all. Upon walking up on him. God knows us. Psalm thirty-four, 8, A familiar verse. It's the second half of it we don't glean from. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. It doesn't just encourage you to try out God and see if he's a good thing. It doesn't just say, hey man, lean into the Lord and he'll be good to you. He's actually speaking in this case that you would lean into God, you trust him, you'd find God ever faithful, and you'd be blessed by trusting in him. You find it's a blessing to take refuge in him. Finally, in the Proverbs, this word is used again, Proverbs 35. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word testifies to the solidity of our anchor. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him, that he will be your protection. And as you can imagine, David... As he's telling you the Lord is his refuge, the story isn't over, so we continue in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright at heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So David is putting before you, he's writing this out for you. I'm taking refuge in the Lord, and yet in the midst of his refuge taking, in the midst of him putting all of his hope, all of his confidence, all of his trust in the Lord, someone is coming up to him and testifying to a different message. Someone's walking into his life and saying, Run! Do something else. Flee to the mountains. You are in danger. Now, if you lean into that, that person, whoever it was, is actually testifying that God is not faithful. That it will not work to trust in the Lord. Your satisfaction will not be met in the Lord. You find a great discourager at work, in David's life, trying to thwart him. Trying to push him in a different direction. Because what this text testifies to us is David is being attacked. And though the imagery is of a physical attack... Those that are attacking are not attacking him physically. It's not like when Absalom was chasing him around. You find that they're attacking the upright in heart, which is to say the wicked are desiring to destroy the righteous. Someone is trying to take down God's people. And this voice says, don't trust God. God won't be faithful to you. God won't carry you such that it's the fear of those that give him counsel in verse 1. The foundations of the righteous will be destroyed. If this happens, you'll have nothing left to stand on. Everything will crumble. It will all fall apart. That's his fear. You continue to trust on God, you're going nowhere. This is gonna do nothing for you. You're gonna be in a heap. But friends, don't forget that David was anchored. Don't forget that David's foundation was secure. David would not be tossed back and forth by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, or by human cunning, or by the craftiness of deceitful schemes, by the way quoted out of Ephesians 4.14, to the weak in the faith. Because the picture that Paul writes in Ephesians 4.14 is, if you're not a believer, or if you're really young and immature in your faith, man, when storms come up, you'll be tossed everywhere. You'll be annihilated so even Paul says to be anchored. David was anchored. They're tied to a sure foundation. So let's talk about foundations. In Matthew 7, Jesus teaches us a thing about solid foundations. Listen carefully to this, because it's going to add to what we're talking about. Matthew seven twenty four and 25. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now pay attention to that verse. It was founded on the rock. What made it be founded on the rock? Was it just the hearing of the word? No. No is the believing and the acting as if it was true. When we walked through Hebrews four years ago, that's how we define faith. Listening to God's word and living like it's true, like it's real. And we, When God declares something to us, we're going to live on it. We're going to put our trust and our confidence. We're going to live it out. That's what you see as the contrast here. Listen to this, 26 and 27. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, friends, if you listen to the words of Jesus, and there's not a better authority for me to appeal to, the difference is not in hearing. The difference is in obeying. Because what you find here in the words of Jesus is that you hear and you believe and you believe in such a way that you follow, you obey. So it's not just this abstract, yeah, I believe, sure. Just like I believe that Case Keenum is going to take my Broncos to the Super Bowl this year. Another conversation for another day. This is a different kind of belief that the Bible ascribes to us. It's not just a a generic, oh, sure, that's probably true. I think Jesus was a real person. I think he really existed. That's not believing. Believing is trusting and putting your full confidence in something such that when he says, hey, do this, you go, yeah, I'm following that guy. I'm in with that. I'm submitting myself to his authority such that I will live in obedience. The text calls that kind of living wise as opposed to foolish. The text calls that kind of living being built on the rock as opposed to being built on the sand. The text says that that foundation will not be taken down as opposed to a faith that hears and does nothing. This is the life that finds refuge in him. This is the life that is anchored. And friends, as we walk through this series, we have hope, we have strength, and we have a refuge because we believe in Jesus, that he is our sure and steadfast hope, that he's gone before us as a forerunner, as the author of Hebrews says, that it's in him. And that belief is, sure, it's concrete. It's a belief that says we're going to hear what he says. And we're going to obey because he's our master. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul also talks about our foundation. And here he talks about our foundation as Christ's resurrection. And he talks about it as if it's sure. Listen to this. First Corinthians fifteen fourteen through 21 and if Christ has not been raised, that is from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are not, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he's raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul argues here that the whole hope of Christ rests on the validity of his resurrection. And so in verse 20 he says, But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And it is worth mentioning in verse 5 and 8, he walks through the list of people who saw Jesus, who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrected state. They were eyewitnesses to the truth of our foundation. Which is to say, because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, because he paid the penalty, and because he was resurrected, our faith is not futile. We are not still in our sins. And because Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the dead, our faith is secure. It's completely secure. Which is to say, it cannot crumble, it cannot fall apart. So when any discourager, counselor, or questionable thought comes across your mind to say, is my foundation going to fall apart or crumble? Biblically, the answer is no. Now that doesn't mean you won't doubt. That doesn't mean you won't struggle. We took a straw poll of honest people who doubt and struggle. We'd all have our hands up. Don't believe it's just you. It's all of us. That's why we rest our lives. We rest our hope on truth, on biblical truth. Our foundation is secure. We have a secure hope. And even David in the Old Testament had a secure hope. Let's go back to Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. That's anchored. That's understanding that he's tethered to eternity. That's understanding that he's tethered to the God above. Because the God of eternity, the great creator God, is sitting on his throne. He's not being questioned. He's not being challenged. None of this in our world that's happening today is causing God to worry, fret, or be concerned. Which is to say that he's got our government taking care of whatever you think about that. He's got the people taking care of whatever you think about that. He's got people fighting in Haiti and missionaries that are stuck in hotels hiding. He's got that covered. He's not worried. A soccer team in Thailand in a cave that we could all go, oh, what's going to happen? God's going, I got it. I'm sitting on my throne. I'm nailing it. God is sovereign over all of these things. David asserts that by saying, his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man, which is to say that he sees everything, and he sees them for what they are, which is to say that he knows the righteous, and he knows the wicked, and he knows those who've put their hope and put their faith in his son, Jesus which is not to say that he's only good to some and bad to others. Common grace tells us he's good to everybody, but he absolutely holds those that are wicked accountable. We'll see that as this text continues, because as David continues, he turns to a more imprecatory fashion. Now, if you don't know what that word means, you will find psalms that are they are called imprecatory psalms. I mean, they call out judgment. Because David's about to do that. So we actually have to handle imprecatory psalms. That's part of the reason why we're here. Listen to what David says. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. David cries out, God, judge the wicked. Judge these people who are desiring to destroy me. Now what I want you to have a view of, what I want you to understand is even in the context of an imprecatory psalm where he's decrying that God would be the judge, that he's anchored. And I want you to see that because when David turns to this place, he's asking God to be the judge, which infers he's not going to. See, in these places, I want to be like, Lord, I'm going to tear his head off. Lord, I'm going to break him in two. Lord, I'm going to knife his tires. You know, we want to break this out into this human place. But David's not. God, let me get him back. God, let me do terrible things to him. No, David is anchored is that he's put his full confidence in the Lord. He's put his full trust in the Lord. Even the judgment of the wicked is now in the Lord's hands, not in David's. That's what anchored looks like. It's to recognize the storm. It's in God's hands. The wicked are in God's hands. All of it is in God's hands such that I can trust God with all of it. All of it. Friends, in this Psalm 11, there are two choices that come up when a storm comes. Flee or take refuge in the Lord. This morning I, I read that six of the boys from the Thai youth soccer team have been tra- that have been trapped have been rescued. That number's probably gone up. Uh, Pam and I actually have a former high school kid that is a missionary in Thailand in a little town just outside of this place. So she's like live blogging it. It's fascinating. One of the interesting aspects of that is she said, of the 12, I can't remember the 12, I made the number up. I'm just being honest about that now. Of the soccer team, I don't know how many of them there are, one of those kids was a believer, um, which just did something to my heart this morning. I was like, man, Lord, you're going to trap a group of people in a cave and put this kid who knows Jesus in with all these other people? Man, make that kid bold. Because for like two weeks, they've had to be going, we're all going to die. Make that kid bold. But you want to talk about a storm. It's being trapped underground. And you want to t- talk a, a story about taking refuge. This is the picture I want you to see. Because when a Navy SEAL diver shows up in your cave to take you by the hand, put a mask over your head and a respirator in your mouth, and tells you to trust him, while he leads you through a dark cave and through several deep canals filled with water, while maneuvering you through narrow rocks in a journey that will likely take five hours or more, took the seal five hours to get out by himself. I don't know what it takes him to take a kid out. That's taking refuge. And you know why that's taking refuge? Because in that moment, you've got to appreciate, if I do anything other than trust this guy fully, I'm thwarting the process. Now, I put that before you as a picture of Refuge. Because that's the picture of refuge we find in David. I'm putting my full trust, my full confidence in the Lord. And if I do anything else, I'm probably thwarting the process. That's the faith and the confidence. That we see in the scriptures. That's the faith and the confidence that we see in David when he is hearing God's words and he's doing them. That's the refuge we're called to. It's to trust him implicitly. Now, friends, I don't believe to proclaim to you in this moment that I've got that faith. Nor do I think most of us do. I think it's a struggle. I think it's a challenge. But it is this kind of faith that we lean on. And it's this kind of faith that when we start recognizing I'm trusting myself, or I'm leaning into my abilities, or I'm leaning into my hopes, or I'm leaning into my aspirations, that's when we repent. Father, I'm trying something else. You just showed it to me. I'm trusting in my own ability. I'm trusting my own skills. I put my hope in this. Man, Lord, repent. I repent. It's funny, we're singing blessed assurance, minor confession. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I always think of Pam. She's the sweetest frame to me, right? I can't trust her. Jesus has nothing to do with my wife. That is to say that when I come home and I'm really discouraged and hurt, there are times I want to come home and be like, Pam, fix it! That's idolatry, right? Right? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. So I have to regularly repent of all of my idols, all of the other things that I put my trust and hope and confidence in. And I hope and I pray that you don't reach a point where, like these Thai kids, you've got to go all in and trust everything. But I do hope that you start to recognize all the distractions that keep you from putting your full faith and confidence in Jesus, and you start plucking those things One by one. So that your full hope, your full trust, your full faith, your full confidence is in Jesus Christ. And I suspect the longer we live and the more experiences we have where Jesus carries us through the unthinkable, the more we'll be able to do that. Let me pray for us as we continue worshiping this morning. Gracious Father, Thank you that you are good and that you are sufficient. You're sufficient for all of our needs. Father, you are sufficient for all of our needs now, all of us. It does not matter what we're going through, Father. There's nothing you can't support us in. There's nothing you can't carry us through. There's nothing that you can't give us hope in. There's no situation so dire, so awful, or bad. There's no storm so heinous that you can't bring light to. Father, I pray that you would encourage your people this morning, that you'd build us up, that you didn't bolster our faith in you. Not in our strengths, not in our community, not in our hope, but our hope would be fully entrusted on you and on your son, Jesus. For he is unshaking. He's unmovable. He's perfect. Jesus will never, ever, ever let us down. And so father it is in that we put our hope this morning. It's that we put our hope, it's that we find our refuge in this morning. Jesus carry us through whatever is on our plate. It's in your name we pray. Amen.